How shall we view history then? We cannot view it existentially or in terms of liberal humanism or accidental determination or in terms of evil determination. We must see history as an act of God. All things are God's creation, and even history is his sovereign act. Luther, at a critical point in his career, observed, and I quote, God alone is in his business. We are seized so that I see we are acted upon rather than act. Unquote. Man is the instrument of God. We are not only God's creatures made by him, but we are his instruments through whom he works, through whom he accomplishes his purpose. Because man is the instrument of God, man can never be passive. This is why predestination never leads to a passive view. Determinism does. <coughs> Determinism does not see man as an instrument. It just sees a blind, materialistic determination of all things. But in the Christian perspective, man is the instrument of God, never a spectator, never passive. He is acted upon to act. He is an instrument, and an instrument is always held in the hand of the user and used. Therefore, because man is God's instrument, man's operation in history and his activity in history is never futile. This is one reason why whenever there is a strong Calvinistic faith or a strong Augustinian faith, in brief, a strong biblical faith, a faith in God as sovereign and Lord, there is no pessimism with regard to history. There is then instead an incurable confidence. St. Paul laid the groundwork for this. He declared in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 that because of these things that I have told you, you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That everything you do counts. Whereas for the liberal and for the Arminian, who is essentially a liberal and will ultimately become one if he follows the implications of his thought, everything depends on man. There is a frenzied kind of activity, but there is also a note of hopelessness and despair because all that he does can be futile. 
All that he does is ultimately futile because it is done against the background of a universe that is essentially futile. I may have mentioned to some of you the fact that when I was at one university campus, I was on a platform with one of the most distinguished political scientists in the United States, distinguished in the eyes of his colleagues, teaching at a very prominent and powerful graduate school. Our discussion became quite philosophical, and I asserted categorically that the universe is one of total meaning, total meaning. But as a theist who held to the absolute sovereignty of God, I had to hold that history was an, a domain of total meaning so that there was not a single fact, a single event in the universe devoid of a meaning. That while we may not know that meaning and usually don't because of the limitations of our knowledge, the universe is one of total meaning. He was very upset with that point of view. I held it against the perspective of men such as himself who insisted that there was a meaningless universe around us. And so I said, if the universe is meaningless, then all that we are and all that we do is meaningless because we are, in terms of your theory, in terms of your evolutionary presupposition, a product of this meaninglessness. Therefore, you either assert this total meaning or you assert meaning, uh, meaninglessness. His answer was, indeed, the universe is a vast mass of undifferentiated matter, a vast mass, an ocean of meaninglessness. But he said, on top of this vast mass of meaninglessness, there is a thin razor edge of meaning. Why, if we fail to posit this thin edge of meaning, then we reduce our world and our scholarship to meaninglessness also. Now, as I pointed out to him, what he was saying was that he put himself out of a job. There would be no meaning in a world if his basic presupposition were true, there would be no meaning in his scholarship, no point to all that he was doing. But he had to retain that thin edge of meaning, and it was very clear that that thin edge of meaning could be summed up in himself and his fellow colleagues, his associates in the liberal fraternity. Of course. And this is why they have a basic elitism. 
such a point of view, of course, is ridiculous. It is contradictory. It doesn't rest on any factuality, but on a religious presupposition, a presupposition of a total meaninglessness combined with a faith that whatever gods may be in the universe, we are they. For us, however, there is no futility in the universe. St. Paul again stated this. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. An assertion of total meaning. Not only an assertion of total meaning, but it tells us that if we are a part of God's covenant people. We have moved out of this world of meaninglessness into which men religiously trap themselves, into the world of God's total meaning. And in terms of that total meaning, we cannot lose, because all things having their origin in God are totally determined by God. They move totally towards God's purpose. And we have the privilege of seeing all things work together for good for us in time and in eternity where we see the fullness of it. However, if anyone denies that faith, if they affirm an ultimate meaninglessness, they must say, instead of all things work together for good, they cannot say that all things even work together. They cannot affirm that all things are good or evil because there is no possibility of differentiation. And the whole universe is a vast ocean of undifferentiated factuality. There is then no way of saying there's a difference between a cat and a dog, except a very arbitrary one. There is then no way of accounting for anything. Thus, we must hold that history is primarily the act of God. Then that man is the instrument of God in his activity. Not the only instrument, but very definitely God's instrument. However, we must state further that the limitations of man are not the limitations of history, because history is primarily God's activity. We can never reduce history to man's capacity. <coughs> We must never see it as merely man's action. If we limit it to man, to man's possibilities, then we misread history. One of my favorite illustrations of that, some of you may be familiar with. A good many years ago, I read Egon Trigel's Cultural History of the Modern Age, and in the third volume, as he concludes, writing in the 1920s, he sums up quite remarkably 
the possibilities for the future. Now, mind you, he was writing in the 20s when Hitler was a nobody and people were sure the Bolsheviks would collapse any day. He said, the future can be ruled by a revived Germany. And he felt that such a thing was fraught with danger as to what could develop and would be a disaster for the world. Second, the world could be ruled by an all-powerful Bolshevism. And again, this spelled disaster. Third, the world could be ruled by a materialistic American imperialism and the power of the dollar. Again, he felt this would be a disaster. I forget the fourth and fifth possibilities, but one of them, I think, was a breakdown internationally into anarchy. When he concluded these five points, which he said, humanly speaking, were the possibilities for the future, he then added, but I do not expect any of these to become ultimately the dominant and powerful factor. Because history is more than man. And there is something beyond history that governs history. It's not surprising, of course, that if you read historical journals, on the rare occasions they refer now to Egon Friedel, they ridicule him as a romantic. Why? Because he believed there was more to history than man. And as a result, he was no historian. He's ruled out of court. But history cannot be limited to man. The limitations of man are not the limitations of history because history is primarily God's activity. And man indeed is very often very limited in his perspective. This past week I have been reading a very moving and powerful book which Dave gave me, The Pastor's Wife by Sabina Wernbrand. In a sense, it has some relevancy to our discussion yesterday about individualism. In that, because in Romania the same individualism did not exist that existed in other parts of the world, there was a greater community spirit and a possibility of greater resistance coming together with a greater ability to trust each other, to organize underground activities against the communist regime in Romania. But also, because we have to see both sides, the fact that individualism had not progressed to the same degree there was also one of the marks of their backwardness. So you see, each position has its liabilities and its penalties. And Romania was backward as compared to the rest of the Western world. But some of the limitations of man as we meet them in history come out clearly as Mrs. Wormbrand in hospital, in uh, a prison camp 
describes how even in prison camps, people continue in their blindness. The horrors, the tortures, the depravity she describes are appalling. And yet in the midst of that, this kind of foolishness. Sarnavada, this prison, was full of famous names. A breezy society column could have been composed about their doings. In a third person, perhaps. Queuing for the toilet bucket this morning, bystander noticed Countess X chatting with former lady-in-waiting Baroness Y. Over the latest kitchen rumor that all graves of socially appropriate personalities are to be opened and gold and jewelry to be removed for the benefit of the state what strange meetings we saw. One working wife, one working party consisted of fascist women. Their chief was Mrs. Codrano, wife of the Iron Guard leader, who had helped to push Romania into alliance with the Nazis. He had boasted in a book that he'd never shaken hands with a Jew or entered a Jewish shop. Now Mrs. Codrano slaved for the communists along a Jewish woman. But the prejudice was unchanged. That criminal Churchill she raised, a Zionist, a Jewish stooge. And Roosevelt, surely a Jew himself. It's because of them we're here today. The guards were ruthless to these women. Fellow prisoners attacked them, but they had courage. Because I tried, and Mrs. Wormbrand was a Christian Jew, to show them understanding and love, one of them approached me. My friends and I have decided, when all Romania's Jews are wiped out, dear, you and your family will be spared. She was surprised that I did not receive the news with enthusiasm. Wives of other politicians politicians who were communists, politicians who had been royalists, they were all there together. In fact, if you waited long enough in prison, if your term was long enough, you would see the person who had sentenced you. Both husband and wife pointed this out. The communists kept throwing each other into prison. Wives of other politicians and women who'd been involved in politics themselves held long discussions on how the world should be run. One said to me, I've been awake all night thinking out a plan for the future. Do you want to hear it? I was not given any alternative. First, there must be a complete military reform. All the uniforms must be royal blue with big shakos. I said, thank you very much. There is no need to develop the plan further. If all the uniforms are royal blue, that will be just enough. Now, of course, that episode reveals how blind man is and how limited without faith. This is why we must say that history is not limited to what man does. 
whether man is with or without faith. As we look at history, we must recognize the providential element, something that is completely dropped out of our history now, which was once very commonplace, was to list the providential acts whereby the establishment of this country was possible and its victory possible in the War of Independence. That is never in history now. Because it would say there is a causality of the man. New England, when it was settled, would have been wiped out within an hour or two if an epidemic had not wiped out most of the Indians the winter prior to the settling of New England. The only reason why New England was successfully colonized. Washington, at a critical point, was saved by a storm which stopped the English. A like natural event prevented the British fleet from destroying the French forces and materials which came and enabled Washington to win. We could not have won without the French. And it was something totally beyond man that faith is possible. Now, it is possible to go through history over and over and over again to find such episodes at key points in history but these are the things that have been dropped out of history entirely. They smack of the miraculous. They have no place in modern historiography. And thus it is that our perspective on history limits history to man. It would be possible if a person took the time to go to some of the original sources and dig out some of the episodes to write a history of how much history has been determined by what men would call today natural events, storms, a sudden illness, a sudden disaster, totally unexpected, whereby an army has been stopped in its tracks. History is determined by more than men. There are some very interesting stories here. I, one of my favorites concerns Arius, and I included it in the Foundations of Social Order. Perhaps you remember it, because to me it's one of the most dramatic and uh, there's a certain satisfaction in that story. Because Arius, the perverter of the faith, who was professing a God who was totally unconscious, in other words, it was a death of God theology, and a Christ who was not a Savior, nor very God of very God, had, through political influence, gained 
his restoration and was going to come back and take over the great church in the capital. And this one old man who was going to see his church taken over by this archcharitic prayed all night long virtually stretched out in the front of the church. Oh God, let not Arius come and take possession of thy temple. Strike him down, O Lord, I beseech thee. Turn his triumphal parade tomorrow into a disaster. Well, of course, there was a triumphal parade with the all the heretics out to cheer as Arius was being led into the capital to take possession of the church. And the emperor's troops escorting him, really a tremendous victory celebration for the heretics. But at a key point, Arius felt an intense griping pain in his intestines and talked to one of the officers and asked if there were a service station or some comfort station or something around. And there was a construction job nearby and a little enclosure with an open uh, hole there for toilet facilities. So he excused himself and went there and suddenly had an attack and fell headlong down into it and died. Well, of course, the triumphal parade turned into a disaster and into a joke. And all the true believers rejoiced and saw it as the hand of God. Now, the episodes like that can be cited one after another, but you never hear them. Never hear them. And yet, how different history would have been if Arius could have gone there. His followers were so discomfited and shocked and disorganized by that unexpected event that they couldn't rally their forces and the Orthodox were able to capture the scene. The limitations of man are not the limitations of history. Because history is primarily God's activity. But we must say that history has multiple causalities. Multiple causalities. There's a very brilliant young scientist who is working on a Chalcedon study. He may be some years in writing it. It's very difficult and rather involved thesis. But his point is that scientists can no longer talk about causality. Why? Because the old materialistic idea of causality was that here you have a cause and here you have an effect. And he said, this old materialistic idea of the older science 
It's an impossibility because you never have a one-to-one effect. That here is the effect, but there may be a hundred or ten thousand factors leading into that effect. So that you cannot use the language of causality, although the idea of causality is inescapable. And the very fact of multiple causality, multiple total meaning, points all the more to God. Points to God more thoroughly than anything else could. Now his thesis is a very, very telling and a very important one. I've given it very crudely because I don't have his scientific knowledge and terminology. But at every point, there is a vast complex of causes that come to bear on any effect. However, what we must say is that we cannot reduce all these multiple causes to meaninglessness by saying, well, there are so many causes that it could be any one of these things or a combination of any one of these things. In other words, we can also lose ourselves in the multiplicity of causes and fail to see that what these things point to is a world of total meaning. So that behind all these causes is a total unity. The very complexity of causes indicates that ultimately there is behind it all a total meaning. It's not a one-to-one relationship, but it's a total relationship. So when we study history, yes, indeed, we can see in the events, for example, leading let's say, the recognition of Peking recently. Possibly 101 causes that went into the determination to recognize Peking. And all of them important in varying degrees. However, we must see also behind all of that a basic purpose which will only unfold as God in his total purpose develops the meaning he has for us, the course of events he has determined. And so there is a unity and a, as well as a totality of causality. And the basic determining factor is always God. Are there any questions now with regard to anything we've said or have failed to say? When you read history books, of course, almost always you will be exposed to the liberal or the existentialist sometimes view of history. And we've been so saturated with it 
that I thought tonight was imperative for us to look at the interpretation of history so that we can be aware of the fact that we represent something totally different and alien, which, while they will not recognize, is nonetheless going to be determinative of the future. Since we are the people of God, and God is our absolute sovereign and Lord, it is God's meaning and not man's that shall prevail. Yes. doing? 
They haven't changed their basic point of view, but they're making allowances so they can kind of scoop him into their picture and put him on the shelf and forget about him. But they haven't changed their basic point of view. Well, if there are no further... Yes. I'd like to uh, thank Russ for coming to California, spending his two weeks with us, and a wonderful time. Our first visiting lecture at Fairfax Christian College. I'd like to congratulate the students who all pulled through with A's uh, in, their, in the course. So uh, uh, we also want to thank those of you who have been coming out to hear the lectures. Uh, shall we uh, close with that? Gracious God, thou who art sovereign, who dost rule the affairs of men and of nations, who dost raise up kings and who dost put down kings, whose purposes are altogether good, we bow before thee to acknowledge thou art our God and we are thy people. We thank thee for the great history of our country, how thou hast dealt with our ancestors, those who came to establish this great nation. O Lord, we do thank Thee for Thy great blessing upon our native land, both material and spiritual. And we pray Thee that Thou wilt bless us as a people, enable us to work to see Thy purpose carried out on, these, on this soil, that we might be a light to the world. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for college that thou hast raised up for these students who have come to study. We are grateful tonight for Mr. Rush Dooney and his work. We pray that thou will bless him and his family and staff at Calcedon, that thou will continue to use them the great work of Christian reconstruction in our time. We thank thee that in thy providence we have a part in this work. So we pray that thou will bless our work as Christians that all that we do might be to thy name's honor and glory for Jesus' sake.